Welcome to the Conversion Aid Podcast, where we help software entrepreneurs to take their business to the next level. Each week, we interview proven industry experts who share their strategies and insights to help you create software that sells. Here's your host, Omer Khan. Welcome to the Conversion A podcast. This week's interview is a story about a serial entrepreneur in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He quit a successful consulting career to build his own startup. And like most entrepreneurs, he had a roller coaster of a ride. He had tough moments, such as having to put his mother's apartment up as collateral for a business loan. And he had highs, such as successfully building and selling a business. He started his latest company about four and a half years ago, and he's taken it from zero to over $2 million in annual recurring revenue with over 65 employees and a 1,000 customers. In this episode, he shares his story and how he's built several successful businesses. Uh, We talk in some detail about how to find the right business model for your SaaS business. Uh, We talk about how a freemium model turned out to be a bad decision for my guest. And we discuss the mistakes that he's made along the way and the critical lessons that he's learned about pricing, revenue, and profitability. It's a great conversation, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. Before we get started, I'd love to send you my free productivity toolkit, which will teach you the habits, hacks, and tools used by successful founders and entrepreneurs. If you'd like to get a copy, just head over to conversionaid.com slash VIP. Okay, let's get on with the interview. All right, today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Run Run It, a SaaS product that helps teams to manage tasks projects, performance, and corporate communication. The company was founded in 2012, is based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and to date has raised $4.4 million in funding. So today, I'd like to welcome Antonio Carlos Suarez. Antonio, welcome to the show. My pleasure, Amir. Now, let's start by talking about what, what drives you, what motivates you. So, is is there a is there a quote that maybe you can share with us, which is kind of will get us a little bit of an insight in terms of how you think as an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, there's a friend of mine who happens to be a I think an intellectual, one of the most uh, intelligent guys in Brazil. He's called Ricardo Guimarães, and once he said to me, "Well, you know, uh, succeeding in the wrong thing is just like failing." And and that's something that really struck me as lightning and I have been thinking about a lot. And I think that's kind of what has been happening through my whole life, uh, I, especially in the two, my previous two companies. Uh, they were very successful, but in fields that were probably not that great. So I'm trying to make it better this time. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to talk about those because this is your run run. It is your third company and and I want to sort of start from kind of earlier than that but before we do that let's just kind of set the context a little bit and and help the listeners to get a better understanding of run run it so in your own words can you can you share with the audience what the product does and and how 
it's different to maybe other offerings on the market? Yeah. Yeah, you can think of Runit as a manager's best friend. So what we're trying to do, uh, of course, we are in the work enterprise work collaboration space, uh, so to say. Uh, so we are basically trying to help managers to get more productivity out of their teams by dealing with time, task, and uh, performance management. So the way it differs from uh, competition uh, is that it has a broader scope than most of the products and as called mixing time uh, priorities, um, uh, time management, performance management, time management uh, into a single application seems to be far more natural and allows for deeper insights. And the other thing is just uh, by having that focus on the manager. Uh, and that's a um, cultural thing that some of the companies in the US uh, don't get uh, is that not every market uh, is as as horizontal uh, as uh, not every company is, is as horizontal as companies are uh, in California, in especially uh, in special, but in the U.S. in a whole or even in Europe. So uh, companies in Brazil run in a different way, and that is also true for companies in very different markets. So in whole Latin America, in China, in Russia, in India. So there are very important cultural aspects that need to be taken into account. And and when it was uh, built for companies that are slightly more uh, hierarchical uh, and that manage uh, things in a, in, in a different way. Um, so, so that's why the product exists. Got it. So when you talk about horizontal, you're talking about kind of organization structure. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about a mindset. Uh, the way I think about the, the, the most of the products that I see in the US in this specific uh, industry is that they have a self-manage and share mindset. So uh, most of the people are very... Uh, uh, motivated and very intelligent and if you get them to know what other people are doing uh, they will kind of arrange uh, themselves and arrange the, the, their work and the company will pre- perform better so uh, that, that's what I call uh, self-management and share mindset and what we have here in Brazil and in most of the, uh, the emerging uh, market world uh, is, the, is, is a mindset that is more about assigning and controlling, uh, so you 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 definitely have a huge uh, productivity gap. So just just to give you a, a hard figure, uh, the productivity of the Brazilian worker is one fourth of that of the U.S. And that's true for most of other emergent markets. Uh, Brazilian is not even the, Brazil is not even the worst. Uh, and we also have a very uh, the year, number of years of schooling is dramatically different. So it's seven in Brazil, it's 13 in the U.S. Uh, so companies evolve in a different manner to cope uh, with those challenges and also with uh, cultural traits that are uh, very different. And, 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 and therefore, the mindset that you need uh, for um, a, a company to perform in those conditions is different. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And, and, you know, I spent many years when I was at Microsoft working on uh, global products. And one of the things that you learn 
very quickly is if you try to build a product for the US and then just expect that by localizing it into different languages you can go and succeed in any market outside of the US you fail very quickly because there are so many other aspects to each market and understanding as you're sort of describing the the cultural the, the you know the social the social there's so many different aspects that you need to understand uh to be to be successful and i've seen that with lots of examples of companies that have done well in maybe in an international market and then tried to go into a neighboring market and even then had difficulties so it's yeah. not just a us thing i think just even even just people just need to kind of understand that there's you know really understand your market before you go into it yeah you you know you got a very interesting point actually there's a if if anyone in the audience wants to go deeper into that issue there's a guy called Gerd Hofstad which is a scholar so he's a social social psychologist who actually he was hired in, by IBM in the 80s to understand why the organization IBM as an organization would work perfectly in some countries and would be a completely mess in other countries and and there was odd because they were using the same processes and the same systems and the same uh, everything uh, and he was hired at the time and they ended up dedicating his whole life uh, to study the, how people uh, behave uh, in in high in corporate structures in different cultures and and he has many articles and many books dedicated to that and there is one thing that i would like to mention that is he has something that is called power distance index which tells uh how comfortable someone is in a hierarchical organization and that's uh, uh, a number that he gets from uh from his studies and and he hangs countries in 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 this scale and in the in the very low scale you have countries like uh, in northern europe uh where uh, if you are not a part of the decision making process you feel that as illegit as not legitimate and that's not something that you should implement and in the other end of the spectrum you have countries like brazil india china and and many others where people feel comfortable in organizations because they know what to expect from people and and what is expected from them and that happens for reasons that are so different uh, but but by the end of the day uh, people either feel comfortable or un- uncomfortable in hierarchies and that makes a huge difference and and and, and that's the whole mindset behind the product yeah fascinating it's a great conversation okay let's let's start by going back to what you were doing before you founded Run Run It. Okay. Uh, so t- tell us a little bit about kind of your entrepreneurial journey that got you to this business. Yeah, uh, I started my uh, uh, I started my ca- my career as a management consulting at Monitor uh, in, uh, in in Cambridge, close to Boston. And I worked there for a while, and I got that I got on that track of uh, getting an MBA, and I actually entered Columbia uh, Business School. But then I realized that it was totally not what I wanted to do in my life, 
and I drop and I actually I didn't drop because I didn't uh, uh, started from the beginning. I, I decided that a couple of months before I started, uh, I should have started. And I came back to Brazil and I decided that I want uh, that I want to be an entrepreneur. And the first thing I, I did was actually actually did a, a small consulting firm that lasts for that lasted for a few months because as we started getting customers in, one of the customers was a publishing house that needed to be uh, to have a turnaround and we raised money for that publishing house. And the guy, the investor demanded that both me and my partner uh, join at the company as managers uh, in, in order for him, because he sees there was a lot of uh, secret creative talent, but no management talent in the company. So I actually joined the company and I became, uh, there was a very aggressive stock option plan. So I joined the company and the company grew a lot. In a, in a space that was very difficult and that that's why I I uh, mentioned that quote in the beginning because uh, making a, a, a company in the Brazilian publishing market to grow by 12 times in seven years was probably very successful but still a very uh, something not not very intelligent to do. Uh, but if, but it, by the end of the day, it was uh, uh, the, the company became very profitable, and it's a market leader, and and it's still around. Uh, it still as a market leader in this industry, it just happens to be an industry that that is not that good. And while I was uh, running this company, I get really excited about uh, digital content, and especially by mobile uh, content. So in 2007, I decided to leave the company and I sold my share back to the company. The company was very profitable, so it uh, uh, ended up buying me uh, buying my shares back in 18 months or so. Uh, and I uh, started the company uh, to do initially uh, mob mobile con content. That was 2007, and in Brazil, we didn't even have smartphones nor uh, 3G networks. That happened in 2008. Uh, and but when we started that, we started uh, one of the things that we started doing was actually building apps, and that company became the largest uh, Brazilian uh, enterprise uh, mobile app developer. We grew from zero to over 120 employees in four years or less, and I, I, we had. 75 enterprise customers and 250 uh, inter, uh, apps published for those companies. Um, and the company was, we actually acquired, uh, acquired uh, two companies in the way, uh, two, two smaller com competitors in the way. And by the end of the day, uh, while we were trying to raise, we, we bootstrapped. Uh, from the beginning, not because we wanted to, uh, but because uh, we were trying to raise money in 2008, and that was crazy because, right. uh, yeah, you had the whole banking crisis, and we just got the doors uh, on our face, so nobody wanted to talk to us, so we, we struggled through that, uh, and that was actually a, a lot of struggling. Uh, to be honest, we spent... I not only put all my money in the company, uh, but I put every the money of everybody I knew in the company, and I stopped paying taxes, and I 
get mo uh, get loans from anyone I could, including uh, I mean everyone, like not only banks, but uh, people who lend money uh, for high risk uh, businesses, and and we also i mean we, we did anything that that was uh, that i actually had my mother's apartment as uh, as a collateral for loans uh, that we took uh, to have uh, working capital for the company because the company was growing a lot wow. so in the way it, we were struggling so much uh, but in the other way the, the company was growing and we simply didn't have the correct capital structure for the company uh, but by the end of the day, the company was do, was do, uh, doing uh, good, and so, was so this was so, this was more of solving a a cash flow issue, right? Because you yes. say it's it's not like the business wasn't doing well and you were running out of money and you needed more, but it was like you were growing, but you just didn't have the cash flow and you needed to find additional funds. Is that a kind of a way to characterize that? Sort of. So <laughs> what happened, yeah, but first because we did a lot of wrong things in the beginning. So in the beginning, I would, I would say that we were we probably spent money in projects that didn't uh, perform at all. So we we actually lose money on lots of initiatives. Uh, but even for that initiative that was uh, uh, doing very good, uh, we had a licensing model. So uh, we were receiving uh, small amounts, uh, small monthly fees for our uh, customers, from our customers. And that takes a while for you to be able to cover all your fixed costs and all your company costs on that. So even if, it, if, the, if the business is growing, uh, you still need a lot of money uh, to cover for your fixed costs while uh, you are getting uh, that, that fees in. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. In the in the end, it was uh, more a capital uh, flow issue. But in the beginning, uh, we didn't. We simply didn't have the correct capital structure to build a pro to build a uh, uh, to build this company, and we learned it the hard way. And, and I, I assume your mother's apartment is safe now. It, it, now it is. <laughs> now it is, and she's and she's very happy. Uh, but 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 it, but it took a while. And while we were trying to raise a Series B, uh, in terms of size, it would have been a Series B. Then we got uh, an offer, uh, a bid from a company that was that had been acquiring companies in our space, and that we have known for quite a while. Uh, and we have. Uh, try to make partnerships or try to or, or run into um, uh, into RFPs and and I mean we have been reaching each other in the market for a while and this company ended up uh, it's a very large uh, Brazilian uh, media conglomerate it ended up making a bid for the company that was very aggressive so we we, we actually sold uh, our company uh, to that uh, uh, media conglomerate, which later, uh, one or two, well, a few, two years later, actually sold uh, the, the company that bought our company to Dentsu, uh, to the Dentsu Wages Network Group. Uh, so they, they also had a successful exit based on, on that company. So, so it was 
seemed to be kind of a solid business, but it didn't grow as fast as we wanted. It was growing like 70% per, per year, uh, and, it, and it was a profitable business. It was uh, doing like 35% EBITDA margins, uh, which is great. Uh, but, but if you ask me, it, it was, I, I can tell you the exact number uh, for because of confidentiality issues, but it was in the range of, uh, of $20 million um, ARR. Uh, and if you asked me if we could have made the company uh, 40 or 50 million, uh, probably. Uh, but if you asked me if this company could ever be a 100 or 200 or a $1 billion company, I would definitely say that I wouldn't believe that in that. And that's why that's why we decided to sell the company uh, and, and start it all over again. So wh- wh- where did you come up with the idea for Run Run It? Yeah, it, ha- it came up from the challenges we had as managers of that company. So we, that company was basically uh, licensing a platform, but also doing a lot of service on top of it uh, for those enterprise customers. And and we were dealing at, at any point with like 25 or 30 different projects at the same time. And the customers were very big, so they, uh, they basically changed the scope and uh, due dates for projects uh, the way they wanted, and we just had to, to accept it and 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 uh, if much uh, to discuss uh, price. So we, so it was a company that was very difficult to manage, uh, and because there were lots of moving parts everywhere and a lot of people involved. And we were trying to use the products that were available, products that have that mindset that we mentioned before, and it wasn't actually not working. So we were very pragmatic about what we needed and we started building that. And at the time it was just an internal hack and we didn't, we never wanted it to be a software company. We never uh, thought about uh, using, making that into a product and even less into a company. And actually, when we sold uh, our company, this product was didn't come, uh, was not included in the deal almost by accident, basically because nobody was interested, uh, nor the buyer, nor ourselves, <laughs> nor the guy who actually uh, built, built it as a pet project, uh, who is the, the, the who, who legally is probably would have been the, the owner of the software, but not even him was interested at the time. Uh, uh, and and it took a while uh, to realize that it could uh, be a, a product and a, and a company. So that's that's really interesting because this this tool that you created to solve your own problem has grown into a sizable business. I mean, can you can you kind of share with the audience in terms of like just kind of revenue or some any kind of numbers to help them understand like where you are with Run Run It right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, we have 1,010 companies right now. Uh, we are grossing $2 million in ARR, and we have 65 employees uh, right now. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's awesome. And, and, you know, congratulations on, on hitting the, the, those milestones. You know, 1,000 paying customers, $2 million in annual recurring revenue is, is awesome. And I think that it's easy because maybe if the tool had just been included as part of the deal through the acquisition, maybe it would have just sat there for years and nobody would have done anything with it. Um, 
I'm 100% sure it would have died. Yeah. And so, sure. so I mean, it's not just about the idea. It's also about the execution. And, and I think that, you know, you guys took, took the idea and kind of grew it in something. One thing I'm curious about is your, your co-founders at Run Run It are Franklin and Patrick. Yes. Are, are, were they the same guys who were working with you on your previous company? In my previous companies, uh, to be honest, Patrick has been working with me since Monitor. To be honest, I hired him there. And Franklin, uh, while I was at the at the publishing house, I was a supplier for Franklin. He was uh, the value added services manager for Telemig, which is a Brazilian telecom carrier, and I was uh, and I was supplying uh, content for him to deliver as SMS, ringtones, uh, wallpapers, and the things that existed back in 2004 or 2006. So we have known each other for quite quite a while. Wow. Wow. Okay. So let's say you, you're, you guys decide you're going to turn this, this tool of yours into a product and a, and a software business. When you, since you had the history and you'd been working together and you had kind of gone through the process of having successes and failures and having made some mistakes along the way. What what was that initial conversation like? Like when you guys got together, what did you decide that you were going to do differently with Run Run It? Yeah, we actually I know that one of the things that you you know, that your audience is particularly interested is on validation, right? As the whole process of getting uh, from an idea to a business. And uh, I would say that the first thing was just uh, being aware of our of the challenges that we were facing as managers and that we were not uh, being able to, to solve them using the products that were available. So that was probably a first... Uh, 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 like a first spark. Uh, then uh, when Franklin started building it and he was, he started just mention it, mentioning it uh, to people and he got a few companies to start using it even, even before Aorta started using it. Then he came to Aorta and said, uh, uh, he, he came to me and said, hey, I think I got something that will be able to uh, that will help me to, uh, manage you because I was uh, the, the CEO and I was responsible for the sales department and be, be sure that the sales department was uh, from where most of the company problems were coming in. Uh, we were the ones saying yes to customers and bringing problems uh, to, the IT, the, to the IT and to the development team. Uh, so he was, so being able to see that the software will actually solve the problems that we had there was a second layer of, of validation. And then uh, after we sold the company, uh, that's, the f- that's a funny thing. Uh, w- when, when we sold the company, uh, Patrick and I especially, because frankly, he lived in another city. He lived in Belo Horizonte and I lived in Sao Paulo. And Aorta was, had, had uh, offices in both places. So I was not with Franklin all the time. Uh, so I was, but I was with Patrick a lot. A lot. So we were discussing what, what problem would be uh, big enough for a solution to be available. 
and uh, and I started to get very excited about uh, about the what at the time was called social business software space. There was McKinsey issued a white paper saying that uh, there was a one trillion dollar uh, of value to be released by co uh, from companies by using social collaboration software. And the Yammer was acquired uh, by Microsoft for one point four billion dollars or something. And Jive made an IPO. Uh, there was like a billion dollar IPO and I was very excited about about this space and I went to talk to Franklin and said, hey Franklin, look at the, everything that is happening in this space and he just mentioned to me, he just said to me, well Antonio, but you know, you know we already do that, you you, you don't, don't you? And I said, no, actually I, I don't know, how, how come? And he said, do, do you remember when we ran it? And I actually I didn't. Uh, I didn't know what it was and said, no, that thing we use uh, to manage uh, projects, to have the timesheets, to set priorities. Ah, yes, I do. I remember. <laughs> uh, I said, oh, no, there are 60, there are 60 companies using it. I said, how, how is that possible? How 60 companies using it? It's an internal rack. And he said, yeah, sort of. But uh, do you remember the guy that came to make our end of the year video? He started asking people what was that thing on their screen and they explained it to him and he said that he would like to use it and then the, the girl that was our uh, customer manager he left she left the company and she called Dean saying that she came to a company that is a mess and it's just like Aorta was before I started using it and then there is and then he started telling stories uh, about things I said well there are 60 companies that are using this software that at, at the time was really difficult to use. The UX was really bad. Uh, and, and But, but if, if we uh, didn't find a solution and those companies are saying that they are not finding a solution, maybe there is a, a, an opportunity there. So that, that, the, having those 60 free users was probably a third layer of validation that, that we had. And so so wait, I, let me just clarify one thing. So before you had even launched Run Run It, the the product that became Run Run It was this kind of like this internal tool, yeah. And you had already got sixty companies using it before you launched the, yes. the business. So it, yes. it was just yeah. kind of, it was it was a free tool, and people would yes. just hear about it and then say, "Oh my god, I'm having those problems. Can I can I yes. use it too?" Yes, and then one thing that is probably interesting for the audience is to know that when we we, we just set a page uh, on the web and we, the, where we, we you could create your account and it was and we would say hey that's that's free uh, up to five users and then you need to pay but you but we are not charging for it but we will at some point so uh, if you want more than five users just let us know and we will uh, open it for free. Uh, to you, and we'll let to know in advance when, when that day, day comes. And that started building uh, the expectation that the larger customers would be charged at some point. And they, and since they would have to, to ask uh, for us to, to 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 have more seats, then we would at least uh, get there get one contact point with them that we could return to later. So that that was probably a good thing. And, and so the, 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 uh, a fourth layer of validation that we went through uh, was trying to get investors in. 
And and to be honest, we had sold the, uh, our previous company. We had sold, so we actually had the money to make us a, a seed round. Um, uh, but we decided from the beginning, and it, and that was a lesson that we learned on our previous company, and and that uh, there are actually two important lessons here. Uh, one was, is that uh, you, if you don't have the correct capital structure, the company will gravitate to the capital structure that you have. So uh, Aorta started, wanted to be a product company. We had something that was, uh, that companies like, like Shemarin or Titanian, uh, it, was a mobi- it was supposed to be a, a mobile app development framework. Uh, and we started licensing that. But as we didn't have the money uh, to uh, sustain that business model uh, that was based on low, on very low monthly fees, uh, we end up adding a lot of service on top of that. And the company became a service company that had a product that would help it to have higher margins and, and a better uh and better execution, uh, so, it, it, so it was. Uh, it could build build apps faster, and and in a way there was there was more reliable. And but it, by the end of the day, when you sold the company, it was almost a service company, and it was not a product company anymore. And and at that time, uh, we front run it. We wanted to build a product company, and we want to stick with we with that. So we need to have the right capital structure from the beginning. And although we did have the money to seed the company. Uh, 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 we decided to bring investors in both for validation, but also, uh, and that's the second lesson, uh, because there was a window of opportunity, uh, especially in emerging markets. Uh, if you don't get the window uh, right, uh, you're, you are, uh, you're screwed. Uh, if, and what I mean by that is that uh, if you remember in 2010 or 2011, probably 2011, Brazil was in the cover of the Economist, and you have the Christ as a rocket, and Brazil was about to uh, go big, big time. It's a huge economy. It's growing fast. It's yep. democratic, and everything is right. So everybody was pulling money in Brazil, and that happens, and that started in 2010 that goes through 2011 and probably 2012 and then things started changing and in 2013 we were again in the cover of the economist but for the wrong reasons we were there uh, because brazil had blown it and then right now we we are in the in a third year of recession we have impeached our former president we had the largest corruption scandal in probably in the history of the of humankind uh, so the window for brazil uh, i think things are changing and that window might be opening uh, next year but it's to, it was totally closed uh, uh, last year or this year and that was the same kind of thing that we faced in 2008 while we were trying to raise money for Aorta. So there the window was, was closed. So we could, there was the banking crisis, the US banking crisis, 
and, and we couldn't uh, raise money at the time. So we knew that although we were in a very um, a good moment and everybody was really excited about Brazil, we should be raising money at that point because that might not last. And, and actually that, was, uh, that proved to be almost prophetic because it didn't last. And then right now, if we didn't have the correct uh, capital structure, we would have been, we would uh, have a very hard time uh, raising money. We would probably not be able to do it. And we would again uh, be struggling with the idea of selling service on top of our product. And, and then we would, we would go the art away again, which is not a bad way uh, by any means. Uh, but it's not the way to build a hundred or a million dollar uh, turnover company or a billion uh, dollar company. Definitely, uh, I don't believe uh, uh, it, it would be it would be possible. So, so, so that that is something that is very important. Yeah, I, I think that I mean I don't think there's anything wrong with building a, a services company, and I think there are uh, plenty of examples of. Um, SaaS founders who have had some kind of services business as a way to help them fund their their SaaS business when they weren't able or didn't want to raise money. But I think the point you're making is that it becomes an issue when you don't have the funds and you go down the route of building services as part of your offering and it fundamentally changes the sort of the the vision and the strategy of what your business is about yes and you can certainly go back to it and that was what that was why what we were trying to do at aorta when we started that uh series b raising uh, but 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 it just went another way. So I I think there's nothing bad, and I think uh, you can you, even if you go that a long way, you can still get it back. Uh, but that's that adds a lot of complexity, and that makes you lose focus, and you lose market timing, and you and you have to really uh, understand that there is a trade-off, and the trade-off that we that. That I that I'm doing and run run it is having is being more diluted than than I, I probably uh, could, uh, but trying to keep focus uh, and uh, to build the product the, the company and the product that I, I really that is our vision. Let's talk about how you went from sixty users using the free product to a thousand paying customers what what were kind of what was one of the kind of the instrumental um, strategies that you used to get the word out about run run it yeah i think there were two moments that were very different and we we might uh, be getting to a third moment now so the first moment was as i mentioned before uh, so the, the the product was there uh, in, in the web it was free and probably without thinking too much about it we decided that it would be a freemium product and we and 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 choosing that. So when the product actually became good and we had a, a better UX 
um, and everything was kind of in place, uh, we started uh, doing uh, both PR and paid media, performance media. And, and, and we already had that base of users. I think at that point we had 600 uh, free companies using, even, even before we started uh, uh, advertising the product with paid media, just, just with PR, I think we got uh, close to, to 600 companies uh, using it. So we had some, some companies that were, I would say have, had been acquired before um, the product was actually launched. So, uh, so, so from that beginning, from that moment, the freemium uh, strategy, and I, I would definitely call it a marketing strategy, not a business model, uh, was very successful. So we get a lot of word of mouth. So having, a, having that, that, uh, that freemium version and getting it publicized and doing PR and doing everything that we could in terms of uh, marketing effort and uh, to had uh, to get the word uh, in the market. Uh, it made the product spread really quickly. So the, the freemium strategy was very uh, important and was very successful in the beginning. So many, but, many people would kind of look at the, the freemium model and, yeah, say, every- and say it's not just marketing, it is a business model as well. But that wasn't the case for you guys, right? Yeah, the, and, and, and I'll, I'll make that, that uh, differentiation now, uh, which is, I, I really, of course, at the time we thought it was a business model. Uh, and of course, the, the way the product works uh, makes a lot of sense for people to add more users uh, on top of it as time go- as times goes by. Uh, if, if I mean, if you are not in a very small company, and and it made sense, and we made uh, money. And the price point was very low, so that that was another thing. So the price point was very low, and that you could use it for free for uh, up to five users. And people were talking a lot about it, and everybody was happy because it was just so cheap, and etc. And uh, and and the product went. Uh, I wouldn't call it went viral, but uh, it, it had a lot of success in, in in terms of people getting to know it. Um, How much did you did you start charging for people who had more than five users? Yes, it was uh, it, it was twenty reais, which in dollar terms it was like six point five dollars per month. So it was very uh, cheap, and th- and that that for a ten seat account. Uh, so that was very cheap, and th- and that was why the product spread a lot. But then we started to realize that the unit economics were not good and that we actually need to raise prices. And, and to be honest, at some point, I was talking to a guy uh, in, in San Francisco and he was saying, did you realize that you actually need like, uh, at our ARP at the time was probably like $20 or so. And he was saying, did you realize that you actually need like, 200,000 customers to have a 100 million turnover uh, company. And, uh, and, uh, and he was absolutely right. And that, that, that is something that really 
get into our mind and we started thinking that, of course, that's doable. There are many companies that have far larger user bases, but, but there's, that's something very difficult. So we also started thinking that uh, the whole thing was wrong, like having a, a very low price point uh, for a f uh, and a freemium model for a product that adds uh, as much value as Run Run it does uh, simply doesn't make much sense. And the fa fact that it has this broader scope make it more difficult for people to understand. So uh, just waiting for uh, free users to become uh, paying uh, uh, users and using the product in all in all its depth was uh, in a completely uh, self-service base was probably not right. So we started adding uh, inside sales team uh, teams on top of it and started reaching customers and started seeing better conversion rates. And we were just see seeing that uh, the pro the price point was so just so wrong. And we actually rose it like four or five times in, in, in terms of in, in dollar uh, terms. It was like a 12x uh, price increase. Uh, and, and, and then I'd like to get back to that in a moment. Uh, but so we started raising prices. We started adding inside sales. We started uh, touching customers. And by the end of the day, we started changing our uh, Freeman model into a trial model. And that's the, and that's for basically for two reasons. One is that uh, saying someone that something is free and uh, is just so powerful that it's so difficult to get the guy to pay and to pay a lot uh, after he had that initial mindset. Uh, that that is it just adds so much friction uh, to to the relationship. Uh, that it it's probably not worth it, and and on the other uh, hand, you also in terms of the, your sales team management, not having a date for the, in which the customer needs to decide is, is so bad because uh, reps would have literally hundreds of customers that they have reached and that the customers said that they were very happy with the product and that they would buy the product but uh, probably not today. And so they had those very close, uh, very close to closing uh, accounts and in such a large number that it was just un unmanageable. Uh, and it, it, was, it was just a mess. Uh, so, so, so the second moment, I would say that, so the first moment, Freeman, was very important. We get lots of customers and lots of users, and that and that was great, uh, but not not as much from a unit economics uh, point of view. And then when we when we started raising prices and we move into inside sales and we uh, change it from freemium to trial, uh, then we started to be able to manage our unit economics better. And and to make the the, the numbers really uh, far better, and and to build revenue uh, on top of of those customers, 
and and so there would be a second uh, a second moment, and 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 I think those were very different and very important. Okay, so now now instead of a freemium model, you you give people a fourteen day trial, and then after yes. that, if they want to start with the the lowest plan. Uh, monthly, it works out to about $12 per user now. So somebody who was using a five-user plan would pay, if they were paying monthly, they would be paying $60 a month now. Yeah. How, how did that work? I mean, you, 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 I know you said that you were telling people the five-user plan is free now, but at some point we're going to start charging. Um when you actually did start charging for that, was what was the reaction, and 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 was it was it difficult to to make that transition? So in the very beginning, uh, when we were from li- literally from zero to close to zero, uh, I would say that the friction was very low. Uh, people felt that they were getting a lot of value and honestly, it was not a big deal. It was really cheap. But as the product probably started, uh, uh, the probably started to cost more. Um, and, and especially when we started to raise prices, cause there was two different, uh, uh, two different things. One was uh, raising prices for new customers. And, and that was actually not difficult to do. We would see a drop uh, in sales for probably 15 days or so, and then we would get to our uh, we would get back to our conversion uh, rates. So that that's um, and that that we have done a number of times. Uh, so for probably four or five times, uh, and we we saw basically the same pattern. So it says that people were actually getting value out of it. So it was just more difficult for people who first who had their first contact with a price point, and then when they came back to buy, there was a different price point. Uh, so for those people, so that it was uh, more difficult. And for those people, we used we would probably uh, uh, issue uh, coupons and do discounts to get them in the price that they saw for the first time. So that was how we handle uh, that that transition uh, from uh, raising prices from one point to the other. Uh, but then there is and and you know there is one very interesting thing that happens when when you are raising prices is that you and that, that that's that's very interesting you get negative uh, net revenue churn. That's the, and that happens because, uh, but not immediately, but uh, as you are ri- raising prices, after you start passing through the lifetime of, say, uh, a significant part of your portfolio, then you, you actually start uh, having people who are upselling uh, on the new price, and and you are losing customers on the old price, uh, so we are losing like those twenty highs uh, accounts, and and customers are upselling from those uh, say that they were on a fifty plan and they are upselling to an eighty plan. So you get a lot of revenue coming from upselling, and not that much. 
being actually lost from churned customers. I mean, you, of course, your logo churn, your churn in terms of number of customers is what it is. Uh, but your revenue net churn, when you account both for upselling and canceling uh, revenues, uh, it's very easy to get that number negative. And that's probably uh, something that might be beneficial at, at some point, either during, uh, you, you can actually plan for that in a, in a fundraising process to have those metrics. And I mean, the, the, the most uh, experienced people will notice what is happening in terms of dynamics, but it's still, it's a beautiful number to show. Uh, but then there's another thing. The other thing is uh, when you change prices for existing customers. And that's something that that we have given a lot of thought into it, whether we should do it or not. And we, for most of, the, of our mentors and advisors, including the ones in the Valley, they said that we should, uh, I actually learned a new uh, expression that is grandfathering. I didn't know that word. Yeah. So they were saying yeah. that we should, stop, we should stop grandfathering our customers and that they should pay uh, the correct value for the product, whatever it is. And, and we did that with advance, we did uh, discounts, we did, uh, we managed a lot, but still, uh, it was very important in terms of revenue. You can get like a six month growth or a year growth uh, just by adjusting prices on your portfolio. But at the same time, you ha you face a lot of churn. Uh, and so, so that will offset part of it. Uh, but still, it's probably very uh, beneficial in terms of in, in terms of exclusively of of uh, recurring revenue, uh, but it's also very it's also bad for the brand. So it was the the first time we had people uh, saying bad things about our company uh, in our life. We used to be uh, loved by everybody, uh, especially uh, from the from the memories, even from the memories of those free period or the freemium period or the very low price point period. Uh, but when people started paying uh, a value that was probably uh, right in terms of, of the benefit that they are getting uh, from the product, uh, some of those uh, customers uh, felt that we that they probably deserved better treatment because they. Uh, believed in us in the, from the beginning, and and I think they are right uh, to some extent, and we we managed that uh, as much as we, as we could with with uh, discounts with and with other things, uh, uh, but that has a cost. So that has a a benefit. There is very uh, uh, significant. Uh, you can add a lot of revenue. You will face uh, churn, and you can, and and that, you know, pure from a purely mathemat mathematical point of view, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but there is one thing that is uh, on the soft side and very subjective. It is how much of a damage you do uh, to your brand, and 
how do you handle that emotionally? Because as a founder, you want people to love your product and you don't want people, you're not probably not prepared uh, for people to say bad things about uh, about your company. And that happens to, to a certain extent. And, and, and that's the... That, I mean, that, that's a tough place yeah. to be because if you if you start out and you're charging a very low price for your product and then you think to yourself i'm going to i'm going to grandfather these people these early adopters into this price because you know they believed in us they they kind of you know started paying for this thing before anyone else kind of really kind of you know believed in what we were doing the the economics of your business might not work as you found out but then the other side of it is well if you then don't grandfather those people and start charging them more then you potentially get backlash and and a lot of neg- negative pr from from doing that so if you were doing this again going through this process again from the beginning what would you have done or, or would you have still taken the same approach as you did? Uh, if you ask me what what, what would actually happen uh, if we decided we had to do that again in another company, I, I'm 100%. Even if you ask right now uh, what the, the three of uh, founders think about it, uh, we will discuss the same way we did before uh, doing it. Honestly, I don't think uh like patrick he's very pragmatic he's a hundred percent comfortable with what happened and said hey we are in a he, uh, we got our uh, unit economics right we got growth we right now uh this uh, bad pr stuff uh, is uh, behind us and people are uh New customers are saying wonderful things about the product and everything. So I'm totally comfortable with, it, with that. That's that's Patrick's voice. Uh, if you ask Franklin, he would say, I would not do it again. I feel that we have betrayed people. And so that's really, really difficult. It's a trade-off. And the, the one thing that I would have done differently, I would probably ex- have had extended uh, deeper discounts for larger periods. Uh, so it would, uh, I would still do the uh, the price change in the portfolio, and I would, I, and I would probably be softer uh, on the way it was implemented, uh, though it can turn back to you very easily because people talk to each other uh, immensely more than than we believe. And and once I started being soft, everybody would know it was just a matter of asking that they would get it, and they would ask, and the the, the effect would uh, be far less significant, uh, at least for a year or so. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough movement, but 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 I I have been I, we have, and I think that most of the audience have probably suffered that uh, as consumers of SaaS. I just mentioned one company that that raised prices a number of times, and that probably lots of us uh, use them, which is Intercom. Yeah. Uh, so we were probably one of the first uh, users of Intercom. We started paying like I think our first bills were probably like seventy dollars 
or something. And then at some point we were paying $1,000. And we had been through a number of uh, at least two price uh, changes. And, 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 and that's life. So probably for us who are entrepreneurs in the software business, we probably understand that what unit economics are and the value that we are backing, getting from those products. And I think they are charging totally right. Uh, and, but, but for, for people in other segments, so people, so uh, we serve people in like a, uh, digital marketing agencies, uh, professional services companies, IT services companies. So some of those segments understand that better than others. Uh, and some company sizes understand are more or less sensitive than others. So I think you really need to, to uh, look at your use, user base and see uh, what do you think are the, the most sensitive uh, pockets there and segments there. And, and decide that. But honestly, from a purely mathematical point of view, purely economic point of view, it, it probably makes a lot of sense because most of the SaaS companies started charging too little because the product's not that deep. And then the product starts to get really good and deliver a lot of value. And they are probably uh, charging uh, not as much as they should. Yeah. Okay, I want to get uh, we're almost out of time, so I want to get onto the lightning round. But before we do that, quickly, when we started talking about this, you those were, you talked about those two moments, but then you said there there might also be a, a third moment in, in terms of uh, your growth. Yes, that 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 is, that is something that that is a working process. Uh, and I'll be very candid about it uh, and say that I'm not sure. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm saying that, that it might be uh, a third moment because we are seeing uh, 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 some very large customers using our product in a way that uh, with value propositions that were different uh, from uh, the one that we started the product uh, with uh, so some companies are using it for like managing uh, capex versus opex allocation decisions from very large companies and and the way we sell the product to those companies using our in, basically inbound marketing and uh, inside sales is totally uh, out of touch with the way those larger companies buy th this kind of product uh, so we are starting to explore the idea of using uh, channels, especially uh, value-added resellers. Uh, and that's something very new, something that we have been uh, testing for like a couple of months with a very limited number of partners. Uh, but that, if that proves to be successful, it would give access to a market that is different from the one we started and that demands... Uh, both in terms of marketing and sales, uh, completely different uh, process. So there might be a third moment uh, coming in, but 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 I'm not not hundred percent sure about it yet. That's very interesting. I'll have to follow up with you sometime and and find yeah. out whether it turned out to be the case or not. Hopefully, there is <laughs> yeah, a, a, totally. a happy story to tell. 
Okay, uh, let's get on to the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just uh, try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Yeah. All right. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? Uh, it got to be that thing about succeeding in the wrong thing is failing. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? It will sound strange, but there's a <laughs> there's a book called The Diamond Cutter. Uh, that is actually written by a Buddhist monk and it's very interesting and I'm not gonna uh, tell you much about what it is uh, it's it, it's not a big book so go read it it's very interesting The Diamond Cutter interesting the Diamond Cutter by right. uh, Gash uh, Michael Roche and Lama Christie McNally all right, we'll include that in the show notes. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Uh, I believe it's endurance. It's being able to handle frustration for a long time because sometimes things uh, get longer uh, to happen than you expect. What's but your... that, does, that doesn't mean that it will not happen. Yes, right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Uh, I, w- I would not say that Ramon is my favorite productivity tool because nobody will believe it, though it is. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say uh, a, a, a habit that, that I think is very interesting, uh, which is every time I go on a business trip, and usually when I go, I, I end up talking to a lot of people. Like I have been to China uh, just a few weeks ago and talked to companies, investors, and uh, people on, uh, in the startup scene and everything. And so every night I write uh, something that I call News from the Front, which is kind of a journal. And it's uh, mix uh, uh, hard data with very emotional information that, of, of feelings that I'm having while uh, getting through that that uh, experience, and I write every uh, I write about every uh, encounter that I had, every in- interesting conversation that I had, and I send it to my partners just to have it recorded recorded uh, somewhere, and and to read it later, like six months later or years later, it's just so interesting. So uh, I think that's an an habit, and it helps you to sleep. And that's very, very important because you get so excited because you talk to so many people and you uh, just before going to bed, you open your laptop, write that thing down, download it from your mind, relieve all the things. And then you are completely empty and ready uh, to sleep. So it's, it's such great. That's a great idea. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? I would uh, actually I would love to deal with health insurance and health plans because they seem so abusive all over the world. In Brazil, it's absolutely ridiculous, and I'm seeing all this thing about Obamacare and about uh, uh, health uh, insurance in the U.S. and in China. Uh, I got amazed by uh, how it works, and I think it's so wrong everywhere. It, it really deserves thinking because it changes people's lives, and there's. Of the opportunities just so huge. Yeah, I think there are probably millions of people who would uh, love to have a better alternative with that, just just in the U.S. alone. But well, yeah. Um, all right. So, what's uh, an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? 
even the people here in the company, I don't think they know that I have been the first uh, Brazilian to climb Aconcagua during the winter. I was a high altitude uh, mountaineer for like 10 years or so in my life. I climbed probably 20 or 30 mountains up, uh, above 7,000 meters. Wow. And, and that, was, that, that, that ascent was never repeated. So it was really, really, really tough. And it was something that I started doing. So I, I don't think people actually even know that I did it at some point. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? Uh, I think it's endurance sports. So now I do road cycling and, and I take it very seriously. So endurance, sport, endurance sports is such a big part of my life. Antonio, thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, it, it, was, it was awesome. It was uh, so good to speak to you, Amir. I uh, hope the audience likes it. Yeah, no, definitely. I think there's there's a ton of value and, and, and the lessons that you share there, I think that's that's great, great insights and, and, and just valuable advice, I think, for so many SaaS entrepreneurs. Now, if people want to find out uh, more about Run Run It, they can go to runrun.it. Don't go to runrunit.com because I tried that and it took me to some dodgy site that I think tried to <laughs> install something on my computer. Um, so um, yeah, runrun.it. And if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, just write me an email, uh, acsuarez at runrun.it. Um, it will be my pleasure. Cool. So that that is A-C-S-O-A-R-E-S at runrun.it. Yes. Cool. Antonio, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. I wish you all the best. My pleasure. Cheers. All right. Thanks for listening. You can get to the show notes for this episode by going to conversionaid.com slash 136. And if you enjoy this interview and want to show your support for the show, then I would appreciate you taking the time to leave a review on iTunes. Your reviews really do count. They inspire me. They motivate me to do better. And they help the show get discovered by more people. Uh, so if you want to do that, just head over to conversionaid.com slash iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to Conversion Aid, the podcast that shows you how to take your business to the next level and create software that sells. But things don't have to end here. Head over to conversionaid.com slash VIP and get yourself on the free VIP list where we share special insider content and news about upcoming episodes. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.